Support for WFIU News comes from the IU Alumni Association, now offering IU Proud, a member program designed for recent graduates and those facing economic hardship. More information at alumni.iu.edu join. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville, fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, providing financial support to the community for 55 years, promoting healthier lives and the advancement of future health care in our region, working together for a healthier tomorrow. More at bloomhf.org. And from Estate and Downsizing Specialists, LLC, offering complete turnkey services for estate and downsizing clients, from initial consultation through home cleanout to final real estate and personal property sales. More at edsindiana.com. Welcome to Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm your host, Bob Zaltzberg, along with co-host, Lori McRobbie. And we're going to be talking about politics today and talking about uh, the upcoming midterm elections. We've got three guests with us. Brandon Smith, State House reporter for Indiana Public Broadcasting. Marjorie Hershey is a professor of political science at Indiana University. And Paul Helmke is a professor of practice and director of the Civic Leaders Living Learning Center at the IU School of Public and Environmental Affairs. If you have questions or comments, you can phone us at 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or toll-free at 877-285-9348. You can also send your questions to news at indianapublicmedia.org, and you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. Well, welcome to all of you. Marjorie, I want to start with you if you uh, if you are with us. So let's. <laughs> I, I am indeed. Yeah, good. I'm glad to hear that. So I want to just start. We were talking before the show about, you know, a typical midterm elections. What what could we typically expect? Typically expect in 2022. Okay. Um, Political scientists have found that throughout the past 80 years, the president's party has lost seats in the U.S. House of Representatives, and usually the Senate, too, at every midterm election except two out of 80 years. On average, in the first midterm that a president has, in the president's first term, the president's party has lost 20 to 25 seats and closer to a handful in the Senate. But note, there were two exceptions to that finding. President Clinton's second midterm election in 1998 and President George W. Bush's first midterm in 2002, a year after the 9-11 attacks. And that gives us a hint why it happens. After a president is elected, the president's public approval rating typically drops. Some people don't like an action the president took. Other people don't like the way the president talks. Often the president's approval rating has hit a low point right around the time of the midterm election. Now, interestingly, it often rises as the next presidential election approaches because by then we've seen a lot of coverage of the president's next opponent. And by comparison, the president doesn't look so bad anymore. But at the midterm election, we don't know yet who the opponent is going to be. So midterm elections are more and more a referendum on people's feelings about the president. We find when we ask people in exit polls, most voters say that was the main reason for their midterm vote. And most of those voters say they want to express a negative feeling about the president. Psychologists call it negativity bias. Our negative feelings tend to weigh more heavily in our thinking than our positive feelings. But remember, there were those two midterms when the president's party did not lose seats in the House at midterm. And both of those cases were unusual years in which the president's approval rating was rising, not falling. And although President Biden's approval rating is pretty low right now, it has still risen a few percentage points since the early summer. And that, at least up until a few weeks ago, 
may have protected Democratic congressional candidates to some extent from the usual midterm losses of the president's party. And that and the fact that Republican primary voters in some competitive races chose some pretty weak Republican candidates, especially for the Senate. But Republican voters in those states seem to be coming back to their party now in the last three or four weeks. Probably, I suppose, because having their party control the Senate in these polarized times is worth so much to them that they're willing to hold their noses and vote for those questionable candidates. Paul, I want you to, to uh, follow up on that because, as, as Marjorie said, we, we could expect you know, this to be sort of a referendum on the president. But this is an unusual time. I mean, we're still – you know, we, we have the, the January 6th commission that mm-hmm. is kind of a referendum on the last Republican president and many mm-hmm. of his – followers, and we have the Roe v. Wade decisions. Mm-hmm. So what are you looking at as the factors that are going to contribute to who wins and who loses this? Well, it, it's, uh, you know, the, the conventional wisdom, or I mean, the, I mean, not just conventional wisdom. I mean, Marjorie bit it on the head. Generally, the, the, the president's party, the, the party out of control, picks up in these, these years. But, you know, the, with those two exceptions having been so recent, uh, it actually only means that four out of the last six have, has, has gone that way, and two out of the last six uh, haven't gone that way. And, uh, um, you, you know, it's always easier to analyze after the fact. I, I, I think part of it is, is there something that people are upset about that they're they're coming out against? Uh, in 1998, and, and actually I was on the ballot running for U.S. Senate that year, uh, people saw the Republicans as overplaying their hand in in trying to impeach Bill Clinton, and 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 that is one of the reasons why uh, Republicans didn't do as well that year. And in '02, as Margie said, we we were shortly after 9/11, so there was a rally around the the, the flag effect. In a general election, in a in, in a normal year, you you'd think that the Republicans would do very well. But here you still have the looming uh, presence of, of the, the former president, both uh, because of the January 6th commission, but because of his uh, campaigning, uh, his rallies, um, and just his, his large presence out there um, makes it, uh, in some minds, more of a referendum, I mean, more of a, of a contest between Trump and Biden again, which, um, which Democrats see as, as helping them at this stage. Uh, the other thing really is the, uh, the Dobbs decision, the, um, the the overturning of Roe v. Wade, the um, and, and people aren't sure how much of a role that will play. But uh, a lot of people were surprised by this uh, referendum in Kansas. There, there was a, a ballot proposition to try to, to codify the uh, uh, abortion restrictions. And uh, it was defeated uh, very strongly. Um, I mean, uh, you know, a victory for the the pro-choice uh, uh, side, and it surprised the pollsters and it surprised the, the the political pundits. So there's some feeling that there might be this uh, undercurrent of dissatisfaction with the Supreme Court, and that that if that's dissatisfaction with the Supreme Court, at least or at least this ruling of the Supreme Court is strong. Uh, that might be the driving force in, in some of the turnouts. So um, you, you've got a lot of factors there. The other, the, the, the last point is it uh, it is such a, a close control um, in both the House and the Senate now that there's really no margin of error uh, for either party. I mean, the, the Republican or the Democrats control the, the Senate only because it's 50-50 and the vice president uh, is a Democrat. So it's uh, the Democrats can't lose any of those seats. Um, in the House, uh, the, the Democrats only have a five-seat margin. So it, uh, even if the Republicans don't do as well as the, the out party would normally do in an, in an off year, uh, they don't need to, to, to pick up too many seats. So it's going to be very interesting to watch. I, I, I tend to think that it's, it's still the Republicans to, to lose. They're probably going to pick up the House. The Senate could still go either way, um, you know, and then with uh, even a week and a half left, that still can happen in, in those close races in Georgia, Pennsylvania, Arizona, and, and Nevada that are probably going to decide who controls the Senate. want to bring Brandon Smith in now, the Statehouse reporter for Indiana Public Broadcasting. Brandon's been a frequent visitor here on our show, frequent guest on our show. Brandon, what's going to happen? Uh, you know, we have a Senate race in Indiana, and we have, you know, of course, all the House races, congressional races. Are there any that you're going to be watching closely, or is it going to follow form and Republicans are going to win the ones that they typically win and Democrats are maybe going to have a couple of House seats? 
I'd say almost every election result this year um, in Indiana will probably follow roughly what you would expect it to. Um, Republican incumbent uh, U.S. Senator Todd Young is up for re-election. He's seeking his second term. I would expect him to win. Now, I would say maybe six, seven months ago, I was expecting a blowout win by Todd Young. Um, but I think that's come back down to earth a little bit. We've seen a couple of poll results in that race the last few weeks that have suggested that it's very close. I, I would suspect it's not really very, very close within two or three percentage points. I would suggest that Todd Young will end up um, with a relatively comfortable win, but I don't think it'll be a blowout in part because of some of the factors that Paul and Marjorie have already talked about, particularly um, the overturning of, of, of guaranteed abortion rights by the U.S. Supreme Court. But the incumbency advantage um, is obviously very real, and a Republican advantage in Indiana is also very real. And and Todd Young is not a right-wing firebrand. He is not an election denier. He you know he has never tried to position himself that way. He votes with Republicans, and he voted with President Trump when President Trump was in office. You know the vast vast majority of the time, but. He is not someone who who goes after the red meat, um, whether you know in comments or on social media or anything like that. And I think that positions him particularly well uh, if you're talking about even a relatively close election, which this theoretically could be. So I expect Todd Young will win. Um, it will probably be relatively comfortable. Um, most other results should follow the same way, except for the first congressional district up in northwest Indiana. Now Democrats have held that seat for a hundred years. <laughs> Um, that's not an exaggeration. It's literally a hundred years, um, and that, now we just went through um, uh, another round of redistricting at the at the state level all across the country after the decennial census in 2020, and Republicans at the state house drew the first congressional district a little more favorably for Republicans. It's still a Democratic seat by every measure that we can look at, but it's a lot closer than it really ever has been, and. Republicans have recruited a really strong Republican candidate for that seat this year. Jennifer Ruth Green, uh, a black woman, uh, an Air Force veteran, uh, strong credentials, a strong narrative. Um, and and she I think she outraised um, Democratic incumbent, first year Democratic incumbent, importantly, Frank Mervan Jr. Uh, up in the first congressional district. So that race could be, again, like the Senate race, a lot closer than people thought. I would still say it's likely going to be won by the Democrat. But if there's a real Republican wave across the country, that could be a seat that flips to Republicans. Now, would they be able to hold it long term? Maybe not. But I wouldn't rule it out, um, at least this cycle. Yeah. I, uh, thanks for all your answers here. There's a lot of uh, for us to chew on. I want to come sort of back to the question of, of voting rights, um, to the extent that that is a motivating factor for people who feel as though their easy access to the ballot for whatever reason uh, might be uh, uh, being restricted, that that might be an incentive for them to make an extra effort to vote. Uh, how much are, how much is the debate over voting rights and uh, I mean without without even getting into the election uh, the election denial but you know that's at one end of that argument of course uh, how much is that motivating voters to get out and vote and I'm, I'm I'll not sure that to anybody. it motivates voters it's this is Paul I'm, I'm not sure it motivates voters as much as it uh, it uh, it helps depress the vote um, the uh, you know if 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 that there are people. Uh, threatening people at the drop boxes. If uh, if it's tough to send in uh, the form, and unless you spell your name exactly the way um, you know the, your full name, uh, and the signature looks like it did when you signed up, um, those are all things that you're hearing across the country that that are trying to discourage voting and depress voting. Um, I, that upsets people, but I'm not sure that's a driving force in getting people to the polls. It's uh, I, I don't maybe Marjorie's got a different perspective on that, but, but I've always looked at that as more as their they're trying to depress turnout, uh, but I, I'm not sure it spurs people to show up. Yeah, so it's successful in that sense. Yeah, Marjorie, yeah. I'd be interested in your comments here, too. Well, I think Paul's right. Um, I think it's clear that over time, we've seen this phenomenon over and over again. This is not something that's happened just recently. Um, you know, one of the things that political party naturally needs to do is first to get the groups that are likely to support it 
the right to vote, which is something that we battled over in terms of black Americans for a very long time. And then once they have the right to vote, to uh, either erect hindrances to the, the kinds of groups that are likely to support the opposing party or to make it easier for your own party to vote. And uh, with people who are listening who might think, oh, goodness, that's awfully self-serving. Well, that's the way a democracy is supposed to work, that the self-interest of candidates and parties will guarantee that they watch one another, that they monitor one another, and that as a result, they keep one another from taking too much power. Um, we've seen that sometimes these efforts to hinder one party's supporters from voting work, and sometimes they don't. Um, we were the leader in Indiana in this, in the photo ID law that was passed by the legislature in 2005, and it was upheld by the Supreme Court in 2008, although interestingly, the federal appeals court judge who had um, said that the, the voter ID law should continue before that, before the Supreme Court's decision, later changed his mind and said that he felt that in fact it had been discriminatory and that his decision was not right. Um, this has proven to have mixed results. The, the intent was simply that we are well aware that some groups are less likely to hold the kinds of voter IDs that the legislation required than other groups are, and that disproportionately this ought to help Republicans. We find, for example, that in several states, um, one of the photo IDs that was allowed to fulfill a voter ID requirement was a hunter's license, whereas a college student ID was not allowed to fulfill those requirements. Well, it's clear that that has a partisan impact in that uh, Republicans are more likely to hold a, a hunter's identification and Democrats are more likely to be found among college students. So um, we've seen this over and over. Um, to some extent, it inevitably reduces the turnout of de Democratic supporting groups. But it also, as, uh, as you both suggested, can have the impact of making the other side mad and trying to um, make them try to increase the turnout of their own supporters in order to counteract that effect. So although we know that black Americans and lower income Americans are less likely to have driver's licenses than other Americans are, um, it's nevertheless the case that voter ID laws have not had a dramatic effect on turnout of one side or the other. I wanted to jump in with, with with two points. The one that I forgot to mention earlier. But first of all, that you know, Marjorie's correct uh, in, in a lot of ways. I, I I still hear a lot of people that will say, "Well, I've got an ID. What's the big deal? People should be able to get an ID." One of the groups that it's very hard to get the proper ID for are females. Um, if someone gets married or if they get divorced and their name is different. Uh, from what their driver's license shows, oftentimes they will have trouble voting because it won't reflect the new married name or the new divorce name or whatever. Um, people don't realize how simple, you know, that can affect uh, half of, over half of the population. And again, female voters do tend to lately to vote more Democratic than, than than Republican in some ways. So, you know, it's it's not just people of color that we're talking about. It's uh, it's uh, it, it's it's half the population. The other thing to point out, though, is. And, and, and this applies sort of the, the overall analysis of the midterms, the voter turnout in midterms is always lower than in a presidential year. Um, always lower. This is the one thing that holds true. People are less uh, motivated to show up. They're, they they think it's less important. Um, and uh, so they don't try as hard to uh, to get registered or to vote or even to show up. So it's uh, when we discuss these things, Part of it is, you know, I, I point out to people that the number of people who are registered to vote and legally could vote who don't vote could change almost every election in this state and in almost every other state in the country if those people showed up, but they don't show up particularly in in, um, in off uh, non-presidential years. Brandon, is this an issue? Do you see this as an issue in Indiana at this point? Voter access? No, mm -hmm. no, absolutely. I mean, it's an issue in every state in the country, um, which has put voting restrictions in place. Um, Indiana was, you know, famously sort of the first to, uh, you know, their voter ID law was the one sanctioned by the, the by the U.S. Supreme Court. So they're sort of like 
the, the, the mother of the voter ID laws in many ways. But, but I mean, Indiana has historically terrible turnout um, over the last several cycles um, in, in terms of not just compared to previous years in Indiana, but we have uh, for the last several cycles, Indiana has been one of the worst states in the country for voter turnout. Is that because of voting restrictions? Probably a, a contributing factor. It's also largely because um, there aren't a lot of competitive races up and down the ballot, certainly not at the upper levels. Um, like we just talked about, Republicans are, for the last decade or so have just been winning everything across the board, it feels like. And increasingly in, in state House and Senate races, um, you have a lot of races that are uncontested entirely by one party or another. Uh, you have a lot of races that just are not competitive in any way, shape, or form. Um, I, I referenced already the, the redistricting that just went on. Uh, there was an analysis done of the new legislative maps uh, around that time. And it, it, what it did was it looked at the new districts and then looked at the presidential results from 2020 and said, okay, in these new districts, how did the voters in those districts vote for president? As a way to kind of gauge rough partisanship and uh, uh, breakdowns. It's not a perfect measure, but it's, it's about as good as you can get looking at past results compared to a new map. And on, based on that measure, out of the 150 seats in the Indiana State House and Senate, 11 could be considered competitive. If people don't think there's anything to vote for, why are they going to vote? Yeah, that's a that's that's an issue. I, I'm wondering, um, and again, sort of see this on a national level, and I'd be interested in comments on the national level to the extent that that anyone knows them, but also in Indiana, which is uh, uh, vote among younger people. I mean, that's always been historically a tough group to get to the polls. New voters, you know, they've just turned 18, they're in college, and so forth. Um, but there's been a lot of effort, certainly here at Indiana University, to uh, get the student vote out and. I think younger people are uh, my my sense, and again, we're biased because of being in a college environment, probably because where people are talking about this. That younger people are seeing their future, and they're concerned about climate change. They're concerned about reproductive rights. They're concerned about gun violence. And you know, is is that uh, are, are we going to potentially see more turnout among younger voters in in even in this cycle, and certainly looking ahead to 2024? And I'll I'll throw that out to all three of you uh, again, national level, and of course uh, Indiana. Well, I can uh, give you some data from the national level, and those are that in 2020, the perception, and in 2018, was that younger voters were turning out at remarkably high rates. And they were compared to previous groups of younger voters, but not compared to other age groups. So we saw a distinct increase in people under the age of 25 turning out to vote. But that's on such a low base because the proportion of young people who turn out to vote is maybe at most um, two-thirds of the proportion of people over the age of 65 or 75 who turn out to vote. It's really pretty, pretty small. Um, and as a consequence, uh, although we may see that increase, and I certainly hope we will, you know, the Big Ten voting challenge exists here at Indiana University, too. And anybody who wants to check their own voting status can go to a website called TurboVote, T-U-R-B-O-V-O-T-E, which will tell them whether or not their registration is current and how to uh, request an absentee ballot and various other things. Um, and that's certainly likely to be helpful. But in general, the fact that younger voters turn out at a distinctly lower rate than older voters do has been found since the beginning of political science research. And uh, for good reason. Um, as Lori says, they're in college. They're people who have a lot of other things that are primary on their mind other than uh, who's likely to win the next national election. Yeah, it, it's, I, I, I wish young people would, would vote more. I bet, and Margie and I have worked on this Big Ten Voting Challenge. Indiana actually has, has, has seen some increases and, and, and uh, you know, we're very happy about that. The, uh, but uh, it, it's frustrating. I, I know sometimes young people are confused, where should they vote? Should it be at their, their, their campus or back at their hometown? Um, so I think that confuses them a little. Sometimes it's, uh, uh, it, it's harder to get registered. 
Um, you know, it's there are some young people, believe it or not, who don't have driver's licenses, uh, uh, the, the, the type of ID that would work to get uh, get registered. Um, you know, maybe not so much in Indiana, but I know in cities where there's 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 a lot of public transportation. I think sometimes young people are um, more cynical in a way that, uh, you know, that sort of the older generation has screwed things up and we're not going to pay any attention to them. So they don't want to show up. Um, I get some young people that they're they're almost expecting perfection in their candidates and if it's not there they they become cynical i, I remember in 2016 i had a I had some activist students and the day after um, uh trump beat hillary um it was uh one I, I was talking about who voted and who didn't vote and what the surprise was and there was one young man who was very active he didn't vote um he'd been a bernie supporter and thought there's no difference between um, hillary clinton and, and donald trump and I sort of raised the, the, the question that, you know, maybe in Indiana, the, the vote might not have made a difference. But how about the governor's race and the Senate race and the congressional races and the legislative race? And it's sort of like, what do those have to do with me? I'm concerned about the big issues. And I think a lot of times, not just young people, but all people sort of think, you know, what, what, what's the big deal? President we know is important. The other ones don't. But they, they don't look back and realize that, you know, 2014, uh, the Republicans getting control meant that uh, it, Obama couldn't replace the, the the open seat on the Supreme Court uh, uh, with the increased partisanship in the country. We're getting a lot of times where, you know, as soon as the other side comes in, the impeachment starts or the investigations start or the uh, the idea we're not going to pass anything because that's going to make the president look like he's got a success. You know, people need to pay attention to the midterms. They need to show up. So and then that's particularly young people, I think. That was Paul Helmke, who uh, Paul works with civic leaders, and he's got that view. So <laughs> I'm sure so, they're hearing from you, Paul, and, I'm sure. <laughs> and they're all going to vote. I'm sure they <laughs> are. They, they better. <laughs> so, and Paul's one of our guests today. Marjorie Hershey, professor of political science at IU, is one of our guests, and Brandon Smith, the state house reporter for Indiana Public Broadcasting. We're talking about the upcoming midterm elections. You can join us by calling eight one two eight five five zero eight one one or toll free at eight seven seven. 285-9348. You can also send your questions to news at indianapublicmedia.org or join us uh, on Twitter at Noon Edition and send your questions there. Brandon, um, Paul said, yeah, I think there are a lot of a lot of young people, probably in particular, maybe even older people that don't understand the power that is in the Indiana state legislature in the General Assembly, and there's a case in the Supreme Court that might even give legislatures more power. So are we going to see any changes? Are Democrats going to be able to make any gains in the super, you know, to, to reduce the supermajorities in the legislature? I won't, I wouldn't expect significant changes in the state house. Um, I already talked about the fact that they drew new district lines and, and sort of, uh, there's not a lot of competitive seats out there. Um, I mean, you can't, I don't think you could draw a fair map, um, that doesn't, you know, crack a bunch of districts and, and, and fracture communities and things like that. I don't think you could draw a fair map that would give Democrats a majority in the Indiana house or the Indiana Senate. That's just not where Indiana is politically. Um, particularly as um, uh, people started have have increasingly consolidated in urban areas in this state. Rural areas are losing population. Urban areas are gaining population. So, with that in mind, you can't draw you can't draw fair maps that that give Democrats a majority in the House or the Senate. Um, but what we saw in the Indiana House when they redrew the districts was uh, uh, something that I think took a lot of people by surprise, even House Democrats, which was it, Republicans didn't go for the throat. Um, they kept the maps largely status quo. They gave Democrats um, a, a likely win, a new seat up in the Fort Wayne area. Um, they they gave uh, they created a very competitive seat on the north side of Indianapolis and south southern Hamilton County. It's northern suburban county. Um, so I would say in the House, in the Indiana House, um, where uh, House Republicans have a supermajority that could be broken if Democrats win five seats or flip five seats rather, um, doing so this cycle would be a shock, I'd say. I'm not ruling out the Democrats might pick up a seat or two, more than they have right now, which is 29 out of 100. Um, but that won't significantly change anything. Even if they broke the supermajority, Republicans would still have a majority, though it would certainly be an incredible symbolic victory, victory for Democrats. I just think five seats to flip in one cycle 
particularly this cycle, given all of the things that Paul and Marjorie have already talked about with, with sort of the historic midterm results, um, that would be extremely unlikely. In the Senate, I would be shocked if Democrats don't lose seats. Um, Senate Republicans went for the throat. They um, split uh, cities and districts in ways that were t pretty offensive to, to people who follow um, you know, good, good government. Um, for instance, in, in Fort Wayne, what Republicans did was they split the city of Fort Wayne into about six or seven Senate districts by taking very small portions of the city and then extending the districts out wide into rural areas. I, I, I struggle to understand what someone living in the heart of Fort Wayne has in common with someone living two counties away, but those are the people who were drawn into the same district together because Senate Republicans decided um, they weren't happy um, with uh, a supermajority, they wanted an even bigger one. Um, so uh, that's, I think, what we can expect to see this cycle at the state house. Isn't the supermajority something like forty-one to nine now? No, it's mm -hmm. um, it's thirty-nine eleven now. Thirty-nine eleven. Okay. I would expect forty-one nine after this election. Okay. Let me add here, if I if I may, that um, what political scientists regard as the normal vote in a state typically would be the vote for statewide offices, because that would give you a sense of what most people um, feel in terms of attachment to parties, because those offices are relatively, at least uh, in previous years, less visible. That way, the normal vote in Indiana is about 58% Republican. The legislature is about 80% Republican, and that gives you an indicator of the extent to which the gerrymandering has been done to affect Republican representation. Can, can, I, I was going to go ahead. I, I, I wanted to add, just just check with, with Brandon when, since we're talking about Indiana races. Uh, oftentimes, the race that people use is the Secretary of State race, is sort of the neutral race. But the Secretary of State race this year is an interesting one in Indiana. I'm curious uh, if Brandon thinks that's one that the Democrats have a shot of of winning. If ever it was going to happen anymore, um, this is the year. Uh, you're right. Uh, Secretary of State is in many ways the baseline race uh, in Indiana. It's it's people don't know a lot about the candidates. They just vote for whichever party they generally vote for. Um, it's also why it's it's the ballot access race in Indiana. So in order to the reason that Republicans and Democrats get to have primaries and are automatically on the ballots every year are because they get at least 10 percent in the secretary of state's race. Uh, the reason libertarian candidates automatically get to be on the ballot in Indiana and, and have been since, I think, 1994 is because they get at least 2 percent uh, have been getting 2 percent every uh, year or every uh, election cycle in the secretary of state's race. Now, there is some talk this year that libertarians buoyed by the success that their gubernatorial candidate had uh, in 2020 are trying to um, make a real push to get their libertarian candidate over that 10% threshold, which would mean that the Libertarian Party of Indiana would get to have public primary elections, at least for the next four years until the next Secretary of State's race. Now, that would be a big deal in terms of visibility and, and greater voter attention and access. Um, I don't know if that's going to be possible. But again, like I just said, in terms of Democrats taking that seat, it, I think this is the best shot that libertarians are likely to have for a while at reaching that threshold. But yes, this has been a very strange Secretary of State race, uh, in large part because of who the Republicans nominated. Um, incumbent Republican Secretary of State Holly Sullivan was appointed to that job uh, in 2021, and she lost her bid to um, be the nominee for that position at the Republican State Party Convention in favor of an insurgent campaign that rallied around Diego Morales, who has been a longtime Republican sort of uh, figure in the state working. He was an aide to Mike Pence. He worked in various offices. He ran for Congress in 2018 unsuccessfully. Um, Diego Morales has a bunch of problems. Uh, Diego Morales was fired at least once from the office that he is now trying to take over. Uh, the second time it was a case of, you can't fire me, I quit, as best we can tell. Uh, so twice he lost his job in that office. Uh, he has advocated for greater voting restrictions, particularly around early voting and mail-in voting. Those are unpopular even with Republicans, and he's had to flip-flop his position on those things. Um, he has had some questions about the fact that he used campaign, uh, thousands of dollars in campaign donations to buy himself a new vehicle. 
ostensibly for the campaign, but people wondered why he was spending that kind of money in that way. Um, he there has been questions about his military record. He bills himself his his social media profile as him in, in fatigues. He bills himself as a veteran, and yet, as far as we can tell, under Indiana law, he does not qualify to be a veteran. Um, he also doesn't. Uh, he's refused to participate in any sort of candidate forums or debates. Uh, he has avoided, in many cases, uh, interviews with the press. Not all um, uh, interviews, but certainly, in a, a lot of uh, my colleagues and I have have. Uh, found it impossible to get him to sit down for an interview. Um, and then there were um, sexual assault allegations made against him in the last few weeks by two women that he worked with uh, more than a decade ago. He vehemently denies those, but those are certainly out there. All of those things combined to make for a weak Republican candidate in what should have been a slam dunk for Republicans, particularly this election cycle. Can Democrats win? Yes. Will they? Probably not. But this is their best shot they've had since Joe Hogsett last won the office as a Democrat in 1990. I, I want to just, I mean, that you're speaking to, I think, underlying this this larger issue about the depths of partisanship. So uh-huh. that even in, in, and we see this across the country where there are candidates who have, uh, you know, their, their personal behavior goes completely opposite of the positions that they've taken. Uh, you know, I mean, I mean, I don't need to lay all that out. We all know that that's happened, and of course, is present even in in people who have held the the Oval Office. So, uh, it, but yet, uh, I I think, and one of you you said talked about you people holding their noses, maybe not even holding their noses, uh, believing very firmly that the opposing party is uh, the devil, are evil, are that at anything. Anything, anyone is better than the opposing candidate. And that level of identification with party, um, in in my lifetime, uh, I've never seen it like this. Uh, and I'm wondering, Margie, may, well, any of you obviously could speak to that. Is is this really something new that we're seeing, the, the degree of tribalism? Well, uh, it is in recent years, Lori. Um, I think what you're getting at is the increase in political polarization that actually did not start within the last few years. It started back in the 1980s as a result of some pretty significant changes in the electorate. And that had to do with the increasing movement of Republicans against civil rights legislation, something that the Republican Party had actually stood for, for most of its history, um, which then attracted white conservative Christian Southerners who uh, became more and more likely to vote Republican, went from about 80 percent Democratic in the mid-1900s to about 80 to 85 percent Republican in more recent years since the 1990s. And as a consequence, the two parties became much more clearly different from one another in their stands on issues. When the white South used to be dominantly Democratic, that made it difficult to be able to associate the Democrats with liberals or even moderates because those white Southerners were conservatives in just about everything except for their Democratic identification. Now that those white Southerners are in the party where they feel most comfortable as far as race is concerned, the Democrats have become much more consistently liberal to moderate, and the Republicans have become much more consistently conservative to very conservative. We've seen more of a shift, believe it or not, and some uh, national comments to the contrary notwithstanding, we've seen more of a shift toward the extreme in the Republican Party than we have in the Democratic Party. And I say that not to make a partisan statement, but simply to reflect data that political Mm -hmm. scientists have been following for quite some time. This isn't the first time, however, that we've seen this kind of polarization. We've seen it routinely in other periods in the past, in the late 1800s, at around the time of the New Deal. But it looks like something new to many of us because of the fact that the 1950s through the 1970s were a period in which the two parties were rather less distinct from one another. So the fact that they have become much more distinct and polarization has increased 
has become more obvious to us. And what's especially obvious is what's called affective polarization, which means basically that, excuse me, a lot of us hate the other party more than we love our own party. Mm-hmm. That level of affective polarization um, means that you are much more inclined as a Republican to say, okay, uh, Herschel Walker is maybe not my ideal candidate, but I would rather have a Republican in that seat and Republican control of the Senate than a Democrat in that seat. So I will just go ahead and support whoever the party suggests. The uh, I, I've always argued that uh, the Republican Party I grew up with uh, was taken over by the Southern Democrats and hasn't been the, 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 the same since. Uh, the, the Nelson Rockefellers, Chuck Percy's, even Richard Luger's, uh, um, you know, I'm not sure how they fit in the current party. And, and even uh, when you see people like John McCain and uh, the, the Cheneys and the Bushes uh, being described as Republicans in name only, it changes uh, the mix, too. But I, I think one point is even in Indiana, in other states, you used to have people that would split their tickets. Um, and uh, but uh, you don't see that much anymore at, uh, you know, the uh, Birch Bay could win here. Evan Bay could uh, win here. Frank O'Bannon could win here. Uh, even 10 years ago, Joe Donnelly won uh, because uh, um, because the Republican Party uh, dumped Luger in the primary and put in somebody who was more extreme. But uh, uh, 10 years ago, the, uh, there was also a Democrat elected for uh, state superintendent of public instruction because of uh, uh, so, some issues there. Obama carried the state. Uh, but now you, you, I don't think we see as much ticket splitting uh, in this state, certainly. And I, I don't think we see it around the country either. We have a, a question from uh, Tim. I'm going to ask the question uh as he did, and then I'm, I'm going to rephrase it a little bit. He said, why wouldn't Aaron Houchin answer questions about her allegiance to Donald Trump at the Rotary Club this week? I know she was a speaker at the Rotary Club. I wasn't there, so I don't know if that, if that was, is a specific thing that she wouldn't do. But how large does Donald Trump loom in Indiana and elsewhere? Is he, uh, a, is he a force for – are his is, are his candidates being supported more or less than you would anticipate? Yeah, I, I, I was at the Rotary Club meeting, mm-hmm. and um, somebody did try to uh, ask her, uh, Aaron Hutchinson, uh, the Republican congressional candidate for the ninth district, uh, about Trump, and she avoided mentioning Trump. She she did talk about some of her views, but uh, it's uh, you know Trump is this looming factor i think in this state and in across the country for republicans they don't want to uh, there's a lot of them who uh, they might not like him but they fear him they don't want to uh, cross him they don't want him to come into their race and uh, and, and criticize them that was he, he was stronger at the point of the primaries because uh, if trump had spoken out in a primary then uh, somebody might have thought about losing and i think he's got less clout going into the into the general election but he still has some in indiana the the issue is complicated a bit because mike pence is from indiana mike pence wants to run for president in 2024 as does the president um mike pence is even reluctant to mention the word trump uh or the name trump on 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 the on the you know when he's out speaking but it's this uh i i think a lot of republicans are are afraid of crossing trump uh uh, even after the primary is over and uh, just they, they feel safer leaving the name off uh, off of their lips. Just quickly, Brandon, how how well would a would a Pence run for president do in Indiana? I don't think it would do all that well uh, at this point. I think enough has shifted in this state over the last six years since he ran. Um, well, longer than that, since he ran for governor. Um, I, it would depend on who the other candidates are. But if you were talking a straight up heads up, Donald Trump versus Mike Pence, I think Mike Pence would lose Indiana. I agree. Yeah, that's that that's interesting. And and I I want to come back here. We're we're closing in on the the end of our show. But uh, one question going back to voting. It seems to me we have an opportunity here for. Uh, Brandon, you in particular, to point people to where they can get information on where they can vote. If if we have listeners out there who need that information, then we may. Uh, and also, um, perhaps what's going on with early voting in the state. But is there a, a place where people can go to, to check to see, are they registered, and, and where do they go to vote? Absolutely. Uh, Marjorie uh, already mentioned um, a turbo vote, turbo as, vote as a place you could. But, but here in Indiana, uh, I cannot say enough things about 
indianavoters.com. That's indianavoters.com, which is the, the website run by the, the state of Indiana. Um, there you can check your registration. Uh, you can, well, the deadline has already passed for you to request a mail-in ballot, uh, but you can find out where you can vote both um, early in-person voting as well as election day voting. You can find out who's on your ballot. Uh, you can look at past cases. Um, uh, you, know, you can look at records of your past um, ballots that you cast, not who you voted for, but the fact that you cast ballots in the past. Uh, you can update your registration for future elections. It's too late now to update your registration or to register to vote for this year's, this fall's election. Uh, that deadline passed um, weeks ago, un uh, unfortunately. But indianavoters.com, you can find all of that information, a one-stop shop to do so. All you need to do in order to check if you're already registered in order to check your registration is have your first name, your last name, your date of birth, and the county in which you're registered. And that will get you access to your voter portal where you can see all of that information. Great. I want to ask about the the issue of uh, voter fraud. I mean, we've got the, the big lie is still out there. A lot of people still talk about it. And I, I mentioned this to Marjorie before we started the show, but if you go back and listen to our October 2022 or 2020 show, Marjorie Hershey just laid out exactly what was going to happen on election night about the votes coming in that were uh, on election day would be mostly Republican. The, the, the early votes and the absentee votes would be mostly Democrat. So it would look like the Republicans would be winning. And then in the evening, things could change. And the president at some point would declare himself a winner, uh, the winner. Um, and then things would get really ugly from there. It's pretty much what happened. And he's still claiming that there was a lot of fraud in the election. Was there uh, – we know there's not been any evidence of fraud in the election, but how, how confident should we be um, in our vote? And how likely is it that people are going to challenge the results of this election? Marjorie, I want to start with you. The chance of challenges to this election is about 100% right now. And let me suggest that um, I don't want to take credit for the understanding in 2020. I think any political scientist could have told you the same thing. Um, the notion of voter fraud is one of those fascinating things that's kind of like the zombie that you can never get rid of. It is false. There is no doubt that voter fraud has not been of a sufficient degree in the American election system in the past 20, 25, 30 years to have actually changed the results of elections, especially national elections. And yet, many people believe that it's endemic, that there are tons and tons of, of zombies coming out of the cemeteries in Chicago who are casting ballots. We've done research in political science on allegations of vote fraud for about 85 years now. And we've found that the incidents in the past 20 years of proven voter fraud, as opposed to people just saying, oh, I know that it exists, um, is about the same as the number of reports each year of Martians landing in the United States or on the planet. Um, it's If you know anybody who has worked at a polling place, who has worked in a local election office, and many of our audience probably does, these folks work so hard to make sure that every rule is followed, and there are so many rules to follow, to be able to guarantee that both parties' representatives are watching when votes are counted, that counts are redone and redone again, that they are certified before they can be reported. It's just such an incredible slur to the hardworking people who work on election day and who work for election offices to continue claiming that this zombie vote fraud exists when in fact it doesn't and when in fact it only seems to be reported by Republicans, even though I've found it fascinating that the very few cases of verified vote fraud I've seen have been of Republicans committing vote fraud, just a handful of them. But this is designed to discourage people from coming to the polls. 
and to encourage people to throw out the current administration, which by chance happens to be, not by chance, democratic. This is a really very worrisome thing. Yeah, I think... Oh, sorry, Marjorie. I just briefly guarantee... We are not guaranteed to keep this democracy. There's nothing that says on stone tablets somewhere that we will always be a small-D democratic system. If we let these challenges go to their natural conclusion, which is to say nobody can trust anything institutional in our democracy anymore, then, quite frankly, we are destined to lose it. And I would hate to see any of us have that happen on our watch. Yeah, absolutely. We have, I think, one minute about, and I wonder if we can get each of you with like 20 seconds. Uh, what issues do you think do you want to see elected representatives deal with in their time in office coming up? Uh, Brandon, let me start with you. Uh, we have a health care crisis in this country, and I'll be interested to see what the Indiana General Assembly decides to do, if anything, about health care costs. And uh, Paul. Well, I've, I've, gun violence has is, is always been a concern of mine. I wish we would start dealing with it. Uh, uh, there, there should be room to compromise and move forward and reduce the, the plague of gun violence that we've got. More, more importantly, I, I wish we could stop the partisanship. Let's, let, let's, let's not mm-hmm. let the parties and the party caucuses determine everything. Let's go out with an open mind and debate the issues and try to find solutions to those facing the country. And Marjorie, last word is yours. <laughs> Thank you. You may regret that. I think both Brandon's and Paul's sentiments I would endorse, but I think that we can only guarantee any of those to happen if we make sure that voting rights are guaranteed. Absolutely. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Thank you all so much. It's always a pleasure to have Brandon Smith with us. Brandon, thanks for being here. Marjorie Hershey uh, and Paul Helmke, all three always have a lot of great things to say about the political situation in Indiana and nationwide. So for those three guests, for my co-host, Lori McRobbie, for producers Benta Boutier, Kathy Knapp, and Nathan Moore, and for engineer Mike Pashkash, I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville, fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, providing financial support to the community for 55 years, promoting healthier lives and the advancement of future health care in our region, working together for a healthier tomorrow. More at bloomhf.org. And from Estate and Downsizing Specialists, LLC, offering complete turnkey services for estate and downsizing clients, from initial consultation through home cleanout to final real estate and personal property sales. More at edsindiana.com. Support for WFIU comes from IU Theater and Dance presenting Gross Indecency, The Three Trials of Oscar Wilde on the Downfall of the Famous Man of Letters, October 21st through the 29th. More at theater.indiana.edu.